0: On today's show, we'll get a frontline report from Dr. Shazma Mathani, an ER doc in Edmonton, just what's going on with COVID. And she'll tell us about a new social media education project she's launched. We'll go through a 10-point plan that Alberta Health Emergency Services has come up with to try and ease the ambulance problem. Animal rescues overwhelmed with surrenders. So we've talked about it a bit, uh, and we've all seen the stories, um, increasing COVID cases uh, in different parts of the country. Dr. Tam in Ottawa saying last week that parts of Canada have indeed entered a sixth wave, if you can believe it. I I thought it was the fifth, but I guess it's the sixth. Uh, But we've had our provincial officials addressing the situation uh, as recently as last week, noting, yes, we are seeing some more COVID cases, but Dr. Hinshaw, Jason Copping, the health minister, and Jason Kenney, the premier, have all said at this point... Um, hospitals seem to be okay. That was at least in their most recent comments. So let's find out from somebody who is in those hospitals. We're going to chat with Dr. Shazma Mathani, uh, who's an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec and Stollery Children's Hospitals. Uh, Dr. Mathani, thanks so much for your time. Always nice to chat. You too. Good morning, Shane. So w- what are you seeing? Just give us that usual update that you bring us from the front lines in your ERs. What are you seeing as we go along here?
1: I am seeing things very, very busy. Um, there's definitely an increase in COVID patients that we're seeing, but that's in the background of a very high volume of lots of people coming in with uh, with other illnesses and other concerns. So. That added pressure we're definitely feeling
0: right now. Yeah, I mean, we keep hearing about um, the other thing. Are you talking about things that people m- maybe had put off, or is there, I mean, I know a lot of people who have been sick over the last couple of weeks but didn't have COVID. There seems to be something else going there. Maybe, I don't know if it's a flu or whatever the case is, but is there something else going on right now? So, a couple of
1: things. Uh, yes, people have been. Um, avoiding coming into hospital during the pandemic, and we're definitely seeing the consequences of that and that uh, increase in just patient volume with other issues that they have left untreated or unmanaged. The other thing that we're seeing is just, yes, general other viral conditions, especially in the pediatric population, um, as those protections like like masking in schools have been dropped. We're seeing a big rise in just general infections. Um, However, the caveat with that is it's important to recognize that even when you do have COVID, sometimes the rapid test or often the rapid test can be falsely negative for several days yeah. before turning positive. So there, there could be other viruses and there are other viruses, but it also could be COVID. And we're certainly seeing that as well. I mean, I had COVID myself and it took three days for my test to turn, my rapid test to turn positive, even when I was symptomatic
0: um when the other thing that the premier was mentioning yes we're seeing more cases we're seeing increases in cases we understand that but uh as far as he knows and he's been told the variant causes much less illness so the pressure isn't as bad on hospitals has it changed like if you went back to two years ago when you started seeing COVID cases arriving in the er to where you are now the population's changed the virus has changed has the way they present changed is it different now yes it
1: is and i think uh that's Two reasons why it's different. One, yes, as the variants have emerged, they tend to be more uh, or less severe. Yeah. Let's say, um, however, we are still seeing quite severe disease in unvaccinated people, especially unvaccinated adults and certain populations like pregnant patients, for example. We are seeing very severe illness still in the un or under vaccinated patients, even with uh, Omicron or BA which is becoming. Uh, more predominant so it has changed but there are still things that can be done to decrease the severity of illness and because the, the, the variant is much more transmissible and we're seeing much higher rates of infection among the general population, similar to what we've talked about last time, a small percent of a big number is still a significant yeah. number in the hospitals.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, like you say, different things can be done. Uh, we hear a lot about Paxlovid and whether people can get it or not. Does it change the way you treat people when they arrive? I mean, is it, is it something you have on hand? Are people getting access to this drug?
1: People are getting access to this drug. Um, I know that in different pockets of Alberta, it's a bit more challenging. Um, you do need to have a PCR test in order to have access to it, so that can be a barrier or a challenge as well. Um, but I certainly am changing the way that I that I frame my history, uh, my history and physical exam with patients because that the criteria for Paxlovid has expanded, thankfully, and so I am. Certainly, so, like, keeping that in the back of my mind with every patient that I see to to kind of assess whether they meet any of the criteria for it and could benefit from
0: it. So, Doctor Matheny, just give us your assessment. Where are we? We hear from the officials that yes, we're seeing rising cases, but the hospitals are coping. They're not feeling intense pressure because of this. Where? Wh- how would you rate this in terms of where we stand as a healthcare system? I mean, we're not back at the crisis levels, obviously, but pressure starting to mount a little bit here.
1: I would say that we're definitely in a sixth wave, and I would say that the hospitals are not okay. Um, Being there on the front lines, both on the pediatric side and on the adult side, in emergency in particular, our wait times have increased dramatically. Our waiting rooms are getting much more full. Patients are waiting longer to be seen, and my concern is always that when patients are waiting longer that we potentially could have bad outcomes. So, again, I mean, the emergency department is, is... is there for you. We're, 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 if you need us, we're there. But my concern is that that added pressure could start having um, sure. some negative consequences.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, hey, the, the, the real reason I wanted to bring you on, well, two reasons. I really wanted to get the update from inside the ER, but I also noticed you on Twitter and on social media this week or last week uh, talking about something that seems like a very cool, I, I guess we can call it an education project, right? I mean, tell me about Shift Perspectives. What is this?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of an exciting thing that I I think I kind of came up with the idea as I was falling asleep one night. And I thought, you know, I have this following that I've gained on Twitter throughout the course of the pandemic. So why not use that following to try to educate the public on different topics that are important, um, just from a general health standpoint, from uh, kind of the perspective of keeping people out of the emergency department and helping them... um, manage their health at home or or giving them a sense of when it's important to come into the emergency department for very common situations. And so I've done a few episodes so far. It's certainly a learning curve. Uh, It's different than what I've been doing on social media before, but I'm hoping um, that it continues to um, to gain followers, to, to gain interest, and, and I'm hoping that we'll, we'll kind of see how things go, but it's kind of a fun project um, yeah. to, to really get that education out there, as you said.
0: So when you talk about common things that, uh, or common questions or common situations that you encounter, what kind of things are you talking about? What will you be tackling?
1: For sure. So my first episode was on fever and kids, uh, which had a very uh, good response. Something as a parent that we see all the time. Uh, the second one was on nosebleed. Um So that's, again, something we see in the emergency department all the time yeah. uh, that can typically be managed at home. Other topics that I'm planning on doing this week, I'm going to talk about the stomach flu. Um, I have a whole list in my phone of kind of different suggestions that people have given me. So lots of things on the go and lots of lots of good ideas.
0: Is it primarily about kids?
1: No, it's going to be adults and pediatrics because that really reflects what I'm seeing um, in my work. And so I want it to be very applicable to the general population.
0: What a great idea. I mean, just sharing that kind of insight. And I think, you know, we we all have so many questions, right? And the worst thing to do is run to the Internet. We've all done it. (laughs) Uh, So if you've got an actual doc saying, okay, this is this is the deal with your nosebleed and here's how to handle it. It's a lot better than running to Dr. Google, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, run to Dr. Mathani on Twitter instead. I'm, I'm happy to answer the questions. And if there are any, like, topic suggestions or, or I do have kind of a QA and a at the end of every week as well that I address. So if there are any questions that come up, I'm happy to, to address them just to, again, benefit everybody.
0: Uh, Dr. Mathani, we always run to you uh, for updates and insight and uh, very thankful that you spend a few minutes with, every, with us every now and then. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. That is Dr. Shazma Mathani, who's an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec and the Stollery Hospitals in Edmonton. Now, if you want to get in on this shift perspectives thing, it's pretty cool. It's a great idea. Um, Her Twitter handle is at Shazma, S-H-A-Z-M-A, Mathani, M-I-T-H-A-N-I, Dr. Shazma Mathani. And, uh, yeah, she's just going to give you updates. talked about it there have been a lot of stories Albertans waiting hours for help some communities with no ambulance service for at least a while as the teams that work in those communities were sent to neighboring communities in an effort to you know backstop what's going on in neighboring communities so uh, there's been a real shortage and now in an effort to um, deal with this situation AHS emergency services has launched a 10-point plan and the province's acting chief paramedic joins us now to walk us through this. We're going to talk with Marty Scott, who is the acting chief paramedic. Uh, Marty, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shane. Nice, nice to be here this morning. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the details on this, but let's start with an update on, on why it was necessary to come up with the plan. I think we all know the situation was getting pretty desperate in some places and at some times. Um, just give us an update on where we are in terms of ambulance service and, and how stretched it is right now.
2: Yeah, Shay, I think you, you definitely touched on the background in, in your opening comments. Um, we certainly are still facing the very high call volumes that we started to experience about this time last year. matter of fact, they're about 30% higher uh, daily than what we're used to seeing um, as compared to historical levels. So we were, we're facing a lot of emergency events um, that we have been for a while. Um, we continually see um, some of our resources tied up in um, emergency departments. And we're also suffering a little bit from lack of staffing and availability of staffing. So those three specific items forced us into uh, making some significant changes to make sure that we could at least cover the um, areas of the province a little better than we were doing. Um, the 10-point plan that we rolled out in January uh, does a lot to mitigate some of those risks, but but frankly, Shea, it, it, um it's really just mitigating factors. Um, it, it's not going to solve um, yeah. the, the volume and the resources that we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, we're doing what we can with what we have at hand, which I think is the best we can do right now, but obviously more work needs to be done. So uh, let's talk about the 10-point plan, though, and, and what it does address and how it's um, hoped it can help. Like you say, basically, it's dealing with the shortage, right? Trying to prioritize the way that ambulances and the crews are used. That Would that be the simplest way of summing it up?
2: Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, Shay. One thing that um, we focused on, we've we've implemented about half of our plan, which primarily was around how resources are used and deployed. So that's exactly right. And a couple of good examples are um, we no longer send ambulances to motor vehicle collisions where there's no reported injuries. Right. Our past practice was we used to go all the time, and now we're definitely um, only sending um, ambulances and paramedics when we see um, that there are injuries being reported at the scene. That's just one example. Another big one is, is that when we used to have rural or suburban ambulances transport into the metro centres of Edmonton and Calgary, they would sometimes have a hard time getting back into their community because they'd be the closest ambulance to another incoming emergency. So so we've actually changed how we deploy those resources now, and we really put an emphasis on getting those suburban resources back into their home community to provide that community coverage. And although it's early, we've seen some positive positive developments around how well the suburban areas are being covered. Um, However, that does mean that in some cases people may have to wait slightly longer for an ambulance that is coming from... Um Calgary, for example, rather than a suburban area, that to be clear we only do that when um it's a lower priority event obviously the the closest uh, ambulance is going to go to the most significant life threatening
0: emergencies um what about um in terms of like, w- w- we we've heard stories of um trucks tied up for hours on calls that, you know, where really there's something much more severe that they're much more needed at that's very close by, but they can't do it because they're tied up with a low priority call. Is there an opportunity now to sort of triage it a little bit better so you're you're deciding where the ambulance is most desperately needed and getting there as quick as possible?
2: Yeah, ultimately, Shay, that's what we're doing now on a day-to-day basis is where our emergency communications officers will assess an incoming call and determine if one can wait compared to something that might be more urgent. Um, We've also introduced criteria now where if we've assigned a resource on its way to a lower priority event, we will reassign it to something that's, more, that's higher priority. So that's something new that we're doing as well. Before, when they were committed, we used to let them run. Yep. Uh, and now we will divert them to something that's more life-threatening.
0: Um, what about patient transfers? I know that was something that we talked to uh, um, people about here on the show in terms of, you know, you don't need an ambulance in some cases to transfer a patient from, I, I don't know, back home or to another care center or something like that. It can be done in a multitude of ways where you're not tying up an ambulance. Is that something you're working on?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's two things that we're doing there, Shay. One is is uh, we've introduced a, uh, a pilot at the Peter Lougheed Centre in Calgary, and we're actually rolling it out into the North Zone. And what it is is it's a little bit of a guiding algorithm for facility staff to help them understand when they need an ambulance to move those patients and when they don't, and then we engage them in those conversations. Now, now these are really low-priority low, uh, low priority p- uh, patients. Like, these are people that aren't very sick, so yeah. they could even go by family or by cab. And so we're examining that from that perspective, and then we're also putting together a pilot project in the uh, Red Deer area. Uh, we're still working on the details. However, the main tenants of that uh, pilot project are going to be looking at ways to use dedicated resources that are configured in a way where the people, in a way that people need them. So, not paramedics on low-level calls. Um, they will be. Uh, appropriately trained people for the level of patient that they're moving and so that's something that we're looking at as another way to take pressure off of those local resources.
0: Um, and as you said you know what I mean we're, we're, we're talking about a shortage overall bottom line that's what the major issue is here I know there's been a lot of talk about getting more ambulances and more crews and uh, you know trying to tackle the problem in the way that we think will probably do the most good is that happening are we seeing an increase in the number of ambulances in Alberta or the number of crews has that happened yet?
2: So, Shea, I want to pause just for a second and recognize the the excellent work done by paramedics in Alberta every day. Um, as you know, most things we've talked about, they're seeing those pressures every day. They they see the patients and they hear from the families when there are delays or when um, they don't think we're there as fast as we should be. And, and paramedics hear that from patients. That's a very difficult position for them to be in, and um, I want to recognize that and and their dedication to their communities and providing the service. So that's. Um, just something that we really want to point out, Fair how enough, appreciative yeah. we are of their work. Um, there uh, there was uh, some relief announced in the most recent budget, where we have been allocated uh, five twenty-four 24 uh, equivalent ambulances in Edmonton and Calgary, five each, and some investment in um, West and Red Deer of 12-hour ambulance in each of those communities. So um, there is some relief coming there. However, one of our other challenges that uh, I didn't really speak to uh, at the beginning was um, we suffer from the same impact of the global supply chain issues as many other areas. So, for example, chassis manufacturers for our ambulances are in a significant backlog uh, in terms of um, preparing ambulances for us to, to use. So, we do have quite a backlog of ambulances ordered. So, on one hand, yes, we are hiring um, more paramedics. We've hired uh, about approximately 60 paramedics since January. Um, however, we are waiting for ambulances to arrive from manufacturers just uh, as we can... Get prioritized and, and um, take delivery of those vehicles
0: as they're built. I think we're all, anybody who's shopped for a vehicle knows that's a situation we're all dealing with now. So, I mean, the money's there, it's been spent, the vehicles are ordered, now you're just waiting to get them like so many other people. Exactly. Yes, exactly. You mentioned staff, and uh, whenever we have this conversation, I hear from paramedics talking about how they're burnt out and they're overdone and on and on. Um, has there been some work to try and make things better? for EMS workers in our province? I mean, they've been maxed. They've been uh, under extreme stress. I know a lot have walked away from the job. It's just not worth it to them. Is there a way to deal with frontline staff? Is that part of this plan?
2: So great question, Shay, and That's definitely an area of focus that we have because we, we hear from our staff as well. And um, we're focusing on a couple of areas. So so one is um, we've uh, bolstered our peer support program to help in- increase support for frontline staff amongst each other so we've got some dedicated resources to help staff um, unwind or connect uh, based on that peer support model. We've also brought in a hiring, uh, a, uh, a violence and prevention strategy. Well, we'll be bringing in a violence prevention strategy. Um, we have a dedicated uh, individual looking at that now because that's one of the major factors at work is, is violence uh, against paramedics. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, um, we have been, we, prior, just prior to the pandemic, we started to work on the culture assessment. So there are a number of activities that we definitely want to focus on related to um, adjusting our culture um, to help more in that long-term view of, of paramedic employment with Alberta Health Services. Um, but and then um, I do want to point out we're just learning a little more about it. But uh, um, last week um, there was an announcement made by the Alberta government that would support psychological health and first responder programs to support things like peer support and to nonprofits that help support paramedics. So um, there's an awful lot going on, Shay, and um, unfortunately, a lot of it is going on inside a pressure cooker, uh, which is necessary, but it also makes that work even more challenging.
0: And important. Absolutely. Um, okay, uh, Marty, I'm getting a lot of questions. We ask this every time. I don't know if uh, in terms of ho- uh, ambulances waiting in hospitals to transfer patients into ERs, is that is that still an ongoing situation that's something that's causing a lot of the tie-ups?
2: Yeah, she that's something that we've been um, dealing with for quite some time historically in Alberta, even even prior to um, Alberta Health Services um, being formed. It's been an issue that we've had, yeah. and we've got a, a number of strategies in place that are, are starting to help with that. One of the things that's in our 10-point plan is establishment of um, an incident operations center, and really what that will do is that will bring together paramedic leaders and health system leaders in the Calgary zone. We have one running in Edmonton. We're going to do another one in the Calgary zone. And what that does is that allows those leaders to talk when we see that resources in EMS are getting really tight, then the facilities will help us scramble and get those ambulances back out onto the street. So I think generally the challenge with emergency department is it's a flow-through issue all the way through the emergency department into the healthcare system. And um, it is frustrating for our staff. It actually links back to the comment, that the previous topic of of paramedic um, health. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to be sitting in the hallways. We don't want them sitting in the hallways. And um, yeah, we're going to be working on some targets that hopefully will will get us a little better performing here in the next year.
0: Hey, Marty, I really appreciate you joining us and walking us through it this morning. Thank you very much. Jay,
2: thanks so much. Have a nice day.
0: You too. That is Marty Scott, who is acting chief paramedic of Alberta Health Services Emergency Medical Services. And so, uh, some things already being done by the sounds of it. Just to give you an update in terms of spending, um, and as he said, they're having a hard time getting the ambulances brought to the province, but uh, at, in the budget that came out in late February, the province did dedicate an additional $64 million to the EMS budget. It went from uh, 587 uh, to 587 from $523. So uh, the budget went up 12.5% roughly, just over 12%, something like that, and uh, the money was meant to address capacity issues. That was that was the goal. So uh, the province came up with the money to get the ambulances, and now it sounds like, you know, the supply chain is part of the problem. All right, Alberta, we need to have a talk here. Not all of you, but some of you have, um, well, you, you got a lot of people angry. We touched on this earlier in the show, and I talked about how I can't wrap my head around how somebody can just decide that I don't want to do this dog thing anymore and and, and surrender their their pet. Now, I understand there are circumstances where that has to be done, and I'm sure it's absolutely heartbreaking for some people to have to be in that position. And that's what shelters are for. But... Right now in our province, we have far too many people that have just decided uh, it's too much work or the pandemic's over, things have changed, uh, basically just I don't want to do this anymore. So they're shirking the responsibility and handing the pets off to these shelters that are now seeing so many surrenders and so few adoptions, they can't keep up. And this is right across the province that I imagine other parts of the country, because we've done stories before in the Toronto area where they were dealing with massive numbers of animals and all the things to go with that. So we're going to get an update now on what's happening in the province of Alberta because it's not good. We're going to chat with Deanna Thompson, who is uh, executive director of ARCS and um, Safe Haven and Veterinary Hospital. Uh, Deanna, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time thanks so much for having me. Just give us an update at what's going on in, in your shelter right now. How, how bad is it's the Alberta Animal Rescue Crew Society, we should say, not just ARCs, but um, how are things uh, where you guys operate?
3: Uh, you know, it's really busy. We are running at capacity and have been for, for quite a while, and the calls just won't end. Our staff are extremely stressed out. Uh, unfortunately, we've had to say no to a large number of animals, and we're just really worried about What's going to happen if if our shelter can't take them and the one down the road can't? What's going to happen to these animals? We have seen an increase in the number of people looking to surrender their pets of 250% from two years ago. Um, That's a lot of animals. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a perfect storm in that adoptions are down. So we can only care for a certain number of animals, and they need to be able to move out and be adopted so that we can rescue more. So, again, like I said, a bit of a perfect storm. Throw in really low donations and um, it's, it's uh, bad. along with everybody else are really struggling right now.
0: Okay, Deanna, let's... I I think the understanding, and I've read about this, and I know you've talked about this, it it looks like this is all related to the pandemic, right? Because when it started two years ago, there was an increase in adoptions or people taking on new pets that maybe hadn't done it before, right? That was something that happened when this whole mess began.
3: Massive numbers of people looking for animals. We couldn't keep animals for adoption on our site, Uh, you know, a day they were adopted, Uh, And, you know, we saw a lot of people getting animals uh, from breeders and from Kijiji because they couldn't even adopt. There was hardly any to, to be had. We saw two great years for adoption, which we're really proud of. Uh, to be able to have found so many animals' homes. And, you know, surprisingly, we haven't seen that many returns. We're seeing more people looking to surrender pets that may have gotten their animals, you know, uh, from Kijiji or from ads elsewhere and didn't really take the time to think about what that long-term commitment looked like. I know when we were doing adoptions in the last two years, we really pressured people into thinking about that long-term and then you know the the second part was the lack of socialization that the animals got to really no fault of the the pet yeah. owner. you know they couldn't go um, to to puppy class and all of those things. So now, two years later, we have. Dogs that are now adults uh, that lack socialization and are dealing probably uh, with that's a big part of what we're seeing is behavioral problems. Um, We had company over and the dog bit, you know, I had never seen this behavior before, um, but they probably also hadn't had people in their house for two years and, you know, proper introductions, all of those things are important. The other behavioral issue is separation anxiety as people go back to work and those animals are not prepared to be alone.
0: Because they never have been. It's brand new to them, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it is something that needs to be worked through. You know, these animals can't overcome it. I had a dog with separation anxiety when I first adopted her as well. Uh, So there are options out there, dog walkers, doggy daycare, um, you know, working with your employer um, to to do part days until those things can um, be resolved or having somebody come over during the day. Those kind of things we can do to try and keep pets in their home and out of shelters. Um, And, you know, it can happen with cats as well, surprisingly. A lot of people think it's just dogs. Um, You can see separation anxiety in cats too, which may result in uh, peeing outside the litter box or scratching things they're not supposed to.
0: Interesting. Okay, but but like you say, um, these problems that people are encountering, they can be overcome, right? I mean, we, sure. You've it's been an odd situation that can be understandable, but rather than just surrender the animal, you can work on addressing these problems, right?
3: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's always going to be situations, like you said, where it's in, you know they just can't help yeah, it. Of course, um, but there is uh, a lot of options out there, uh, mm-hmm. including speaking to trainers, doing your research. Uh, like I said, mm-hmm. utilize invest in that animal and, and take them to to classes to mm. get a dog walker, um, work with them and learn about animal behavior because we can change behavior in animals if that's what the problem is, uh, and realize that, you know, we've committed to, to 10 years and uh, you can overcome these issues uh, just like we will if they're surrendered yeah. here. We'll work with our team, you know, to help rehabilitate these dogs and mm. find a new home. You can do that yourself. Uh, um, it just takes some time and commitment. Uh, again, like I said, there are going to be times when people can't or it's a stray animal, um, you know, that we're, those are the ones we really want to focus on are the animals that have no home uh, and would love to see the animals that are in homes continue to stay in home uh, and work through issues if they can so that we can help those in most need who have no one, um, you know, these, these stray animals that really need us.
0: Um, so Dan, a couple of ways that I want to ask you about how Albertans can help if they're interested. And I know one of them, and I don't know if a lot of people have considered it, is fostering where, okay, you're not going to, you're not adopting the animal, but if you have the time and you have the space and you have the heart, you can bring an animal in for, I don't know, like what, how does that work? How does a fostering program work? What's the obligation?
3: Yeah, fostering is a wonderful way to have a pet in your life without making that long-term commitment. So we pay for everything and provide uh, everything someone would need to have a pet, whether that be a kennel, dog food, dishes, Um, Same with cats, cat trees, beds, you name it. And you just have to care for that pet like you would your own uh, pet until we can find a perfect home for it. So it can last anywhere from, say, a couple of weeks and we find them a new home to a few months. Perhaps you're fostering an animal with medical needs that they have to overcome. We pay for all of that. Uh, So there should be no cost to the family aside from driving that animal to the vet clinic, uh, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, we have a great team of people that will help screen wonderful families uh, to find them a new home and, and and honestly fostering saves lives every animal that leaves our shelter and goes into a foster home makes room for another animal to come in so really you're saving two lives that animal that you're taking in and that space to allow another animal to come in so um, we saw a huge increase in fostering during COVID uh, unfortunately that too has gone down with adoptions. people are busy um, You know, whether it's camping or going on vacation or Mm. back to school or work, we have lots of full time um, people that still foster animals, so uh, anyone can do it. if you live in an apartment, it's fine. Uh, you name it. We have options available. We even have fosters that will do weekend coverage for for fosters that are going away. So oh, maybe wow. you can't commit to that long term, but you'd like to be a foster home for the weekends, uh, you know, when a foster's gone camping and we need to, that animal can't go camping with them. So lots of great uh, ways. And or volunteering at the shelter. We have shelters in both Edmonton and Calgary where people can come and help us walk and clean and feed uh, the animals that are there. There are uh, multiple shifts per day uh, where people can help, um, you know, work with the, directly with the animals, but potentially not be able to have them in their home for allergies or other reasons. Uh,
0: a good question from Bill, and I, I think I might be in this position. He says, what happens if you foster a dog and then you decide, you know what, I really like this dog and I want to keep it? Now, if, if there was a lot of medical bills and things like that, are you on the hook for those or is it possible to decide, you know what, I really like this dog and I want to make it part of my home? How does that work?
3: I mean, ideally, we don't want our fosters to adopt so we can keep them, you know, rotating through animals in need. But we know that that happens. So if you fall in love with your foster dog, uh, we do allow them to adopt them. They just have to pay the adoption fee like a regular uh, adopter would.
0: Perfect. Okay, and of course, uh, goes without saying, but donations for all of these shelters across the province right now. The cost of these animals and caring for them and veterinary bills. One shelter saying they were spending a hundred thousand dollars a month just on vet bills. So, um, cash is always king, right, Deanna?
3: That's right. Our vet bills are over a hundred grand every single month, no matter what's coming in. Um, we, it, it's expensive, and uh, vet care right now is really hard to come by. We're lucky to have a vet clinic in Calgary, but we don't have one in Edmonton. Um, so yeah, and then you know we have, we're running shelters. We're paying utility costs like everybody else. You saw your utility bills go up, so are. Our food costs are going up, so and donations are down. So, you know, even 10 or $15 a month, uh, if you can become a monthly donor, will make a huge difference in the lives of animals. Uh, we currently are running a lottery uh, with a 50-50. Sales are down for that. We're only 42% sold. We really need to sell tickets for that. So if you're into that and uh, would like to potentially win up to $50,000 or more, um, grab a ticket on our website. That will really also help us help these animals. Uh,
0: uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And thanks so much for the work that you do. Uh, Can't thank you enough. It's fantastic. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That is uh, Deanna Thompson, the Executive Director of ARCS. Canada Safe Haven Veterinary Hospital, as she said, they've got shelters uh, in different parts of the province and uh, all, I mean, you, you name it, all of the shelters in Alberta right now are, are seeing the exact same situation and need your help. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.